Once upon a time, a man built a pond in the middle of his pasture. On a cold, wintry day, a shepherd who was grazing his sheep decided to take a shortcut across the pasture. He wanted to lead his sheep over the icy pond, but the sheep wouldn't follow. The owner of the pasture, he he saw what was happening. He pointed to the shepherd and his sheep, and then he said to his wife, Honey, let's be careful. That guy is trying to pull the wool over our eyes. You know what kind of a joke that was? That was a bad joke. Last week, we talked about shepherds. This week, we'll talk about sheep. For in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Peter calls the church the flock of God. As followers of Jesus, we are sheep in God's pasture. And God has set shepherds or pastors over the sheep. God's flock is made up of both sheep and shepherds. The sheep need good shepherds, and the shepherds need good sheep. Last week, we learned how to spot a good shepherd. Don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes. A faithful shepherd serves willingly. He feeds the sheep. He doesn't beat the sheep. He isn't in it for the money. He loves God and loves people. A true shepherd is an example, not an exception. He leads, he doesn't lord or boss the sheep around. And the shepherd isn't looking for a reward from the flock. He's not expecting his sheep to get together and take up a collection for him. His eyes are on the chief shepherd. He knows that when Jesus appears, he will receive a crown. But if you're a sheep and you want to do something nice for your shepherd... Here's what you can do. You can be a good sheep, not a bad sheep. Don't try to pull the wool over his eyes either. Don't just smooze up to the pastor on Sundays and then get together with the other sheep to take a bite out of him during the week. Be submissive and be humble and be vigilant and be steady even in tough times. In the flock of God, we need sincere shepherds and we need willing sheep. Last week, we discussed the shepherds. We talked about faithful leaders. This morning, we're going to close 1 Peter with how to be a good sheep, a faithful follower. And Peter begins his advice to the sheep, his sheep talk. Here in verse 5, he says, Likewise, You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. The job of a sheep is to let the shepherd lead. In a word, submit. Now in verse 5, it's interesting that Peter takes this whole matter of the flock of God, of shepherds and sheep, and he puts it into the context of kids and elders. And doesn't life itself teach us that we all should respect the wisdom of of people older than us. Gray hair and wrinkles doesn't mean outdated or obsolete. It means there's the owner of someone who has some lessons that he can teach us. There's a person who's been around the block a time or two. I can learn from them. A humble person thinks that way. Here's the problem, though. 
younger people are notorious know-it-alls. They're not always humble. Once a parent hung a poster on a teenager's bedroom door. It read, Teenagers, tired of being hassled by your stupid parents? Act now. Move out. Get a job. Pay your own bills while you still know everything. It's been said, insanity is hereditary. You get it from your teenagers. You know, a younger person talks a lot and listens a little. One teenage girl, she was always on the phone. Every conversation lasted over an hour. And, and one night, her dad reprimanded her. He said, honey, please start limiting your calls to 20 minutes. Well, the next night, the phone rang, and the daughter answered, and the father immediately put her on the timer. And he was surprised when all of a sudden, she hung up in 20 minutes. He couldn't believe it. The shocked dad, he asked his daughter, he said, Honey, which of your friends was that? And that's when she replied, Oh, Daddy, that wasn't a friend. It was the wrong number. <laughs> hey, young people talk a lot and listen a little. Or probably more accurate for today, they text a ton and they listen a little. And this is true of both chronological teenagers and spiritual teenagers. Maybe you didn't know it, but there is such a thing as a spiritual teenager. These are the believers in the church. that They may be older age-wise, but they've got this know-it-all attitude, the attitude of a teenager. Oh, they're quick to criticize. And they cop an attitude when anything in the church doesn't go their way. And they lack the big picture. They evaluate every church decision by how it affects or inconveniences them. They have this me-centered perspective. Oh, when these folks were first saved, their church could do no wrong. But now that they've been around for a while, their church leaders can do nothing right. Understand, I know a lot about spiritual teenagers because I was one for a long, long time. You know, even after becoming a pastor, I thought I knew it all. But being a pastor can humble you. In fact, it can knock the stuffing right out of you. And after a few years, I realized that there were a few gaps in my understanding. I decided I needed to listen. I needed to start taking notes. I needed to humble myself. I decided I'd try to learn as much as I could from as many people as I could. And that's still my attitude today. Why reinvent the wheel every time you try to do something new? Why not avail yourself to other people's experiences? In fact, everybody learns through experience. I hope you know that. Either your experiences, or if you're wise, the experiences of other people. You know, a wise person avoids some lumps and learns from other people's experience. He or she doesn't have to learn everything the hard way. You know, the school of hard knocks has expensive tuition. And this is why God places shepherds over sheep. People can learn from their elders and their wisdom. Elders come in two varieties, age-wise and sage-wise. You see, elder doesn't just mean an older man. An elder is a church leader. 
elder is a function in the church. Even a young man can serve as an elder if he has a measure of godly wisdom. And here is a sheep's responsibility to the shepherd. Submit yourself to your elders, Peter says. In short, let the shepherd lead. Get behind your leader's initiatives. Support his ventures in faith. Trust that he has heard from God. You know, as kids, we grew up playing that game, follow the leader. Yet along the way, from youth to adulthood, we grew cynical of leadership. Especially church leadership. I'm sure part of it are the scandals and the charlatans we've seen. But part of the problem lies in our hearts. For you have to be humble if you're going to be led. Once I was talking to John Corson, a friend of mine, just after Pastor John had resigned from his very successful church in Oregon to move down to Southern California to serve as an assistant pastor to Pastor Chuck. And I asked John, I said, John, will you have a tough time submitting to another pastor after you've been a leader for so long? And I'll never forget his answer. He said, Sandy, it's not submission until you disagree. You know, it's easy to talk about humility and submission and loyalty to another as long as there's no conflict or no difference of opinion. The test comes when there's a disagreement. And this is true in a church, on a team, even in a marriage. Will I humble myself? Will I trust God? Will I get on board? Or will I buck the decision and assert my own independence and derail the greater good? Peter knows what we ought to do. We need to humble ourselves. Younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. But then he also says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Younger folks need to submit to the gray hairs and the elders and the church leaders, but then the elders should also submit to the people under them. We all have a lot to learn from each other. If you're an older person, I hope you don't just sit back and expect younger folks to bow to your whims. The older set should want to cater to younger tastes. You know, I hate to say it, but in the church, I see more of this unbending, me-first, teenager mentality among the older folks than I do among the younger members. Older people can get stuck in their routine. They like it, like it their way. They resist change. And their refusal to submit can hinder the growth of the church. You know, I believe that every church should be deliberate about reaching young people. Why? They're the lifeblood of the church. Remember this, the church is always one generation from extinction. That's why it's imperative we pass on our faith. Chances are in 30 years, I'm going to be pushing up daisies. That's why I need to be cultivating a few replacements to carry on God's work in this church. I hope you know, not everything we've done over the last few years has been a style I liked. I'm getting older. My tastes are not always cutting edge, but I know the bigger picture. And I want to be flexible enough to reach people. Humility understands that it's not just about me. There's more at stake. Sheep need to submit to shepherds, but at times, spiritual shepherds need to submit to the sheep. 
We all need to humble ourselves. We all need to be submissive to one another. Yes, we have different roles, but none of us are above another. I want you to know my door is always open. I need your feedback, even your rebuke at times. I don't live in some ivory tower. I am far from untouchable. Leave me a message and I'll call you. Send me an email and I'll reply. Hang around on a Sunday night, that's even better than I'll talk to you afterwards. I care about what you think. I hope you can learn from me, but I also know that I can learn from you. And Peter goes on to encourage us all. He says, be clothed with humility. And then he tells us why this is so important. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. You need to understand, this word resist, it means oppose. God is opposed to the proud. It's not just that he works around the proud. It's not just that he tolerates the proud. No, he is outright against the proud. If you're a little puffed up, if you're a little stuck on yourself, don't be surprised when you line up for life that you look across the line of scrimmage and you see God on the other side of the ball growling at you. He's against you if you're proud. <laughs> boy, oh boy, I want to be on God's team. I don't want to be against God. I don't want to be on the other team. No one fights with God and wins. Just remember, God's team colors are humility. And here Peter passes out the uniforms. He hands us our jersey. He says, if you want to play for God, be clothed with humility. You see, here's your choice. Humility or humiliation. That's your choice. You can humble yourself or God will humble you. That's your choice. In Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus puts it this way, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In high school, I was one more stuck-up, self-righteous, prideful jerk. That's sort of saying it mildly. And I can remember God's numerous attempts to humble me. When I play basketball, I always like to show off the fact that I was a starter on the team. And so during layups, I'd run over to the bench and be the first one to take off my warm-up suit, you know. I wanted everybody to know that I was a starter. I'll never forget running over to the bench one, one evening and ripping off my warm-up pants only to discover that I had forgotten to put my gym shorts on underneath my pants. And so there I am standing in front of the crowd in nothing but my jockeys. I was so humiliated, so embarrassed, I scored two points the whole night. I was slam dunked before I started. And over and over, God tried to get my attention. His attempts, though, became more serious and less humorous. Like a wild colt, God had to break my stubbornness. But He was faithful. He is faithful to break our stubbornness. And after battering my dreams and letting me run off people I loved, and letting me make a mess out of my life, I broke. It was the springtime of 1980. I was driving down Five Forks Road, and I pulled into a gravel parking lot. I knelt down at a concrete picnic table, and I surrendered what was left of my life to Jesus Christ. 
There were no sparks and no fireworks, but I experienced that night the blessing of brokenness, and I have never been the same person since. I only wish I hadn't been so stubborn. I could have spared myself a lot of pain. You see, if you harden your heart, our loving God will become a sledgehammer to you. He will humble you. Matthew 21, verse 44, Jesus spoke of himself. He was speaking to a group of stubborn, self-righteous, hard-hearted Pharisees. He said, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus says, you can fall on me, or I'm going to fall on you. You don't want that to happen. Again, here's your choice. Broke to pieces or ground to powder. You know, the Bible refers to God's people as clay in the potter's hands. But if the clay is hard and unworkable, it's worthless. That's why it has to be broken. And it has to be softened. And it has to be humbled. You've been praying to know God's will, but perhaps an unpleasant work has to be done on you and in you before you're ready for His plan. Let me answer the question for you. Broke to pieces or grinded to powder? Hey, pieces are better than powder. It's been said Jesus can fix a broken heart if you give Him all the pieces. Humble yourself before God. Don't make Jesus humble you. There may be nothing left when He's finished. Peter says to us in verse 6, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. You see, if you humble yourself under God's mighty hand, He'll see to it that you get exalted. Maybe not the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year, but you'll get exalted in due time. Here's the key to humility. Living in the shadow of God's mighty hand. Do you live your life in the shadow of God's hand? You see, at high noon, when the heat is on, and the sun is hot, and the pressure of our circumstances is rising, the shadows disappear, don't they? There are no shadows at noon. We forget about God's mighty hand when the pressure is applied, and then we foolishly take matters into our own hands. But humility is remembering the hand above us, God's mighty hand. If it's all about my hands and what they can hold and what they can do, I want to grab what I can. I'll do the grabbing while the grabbing's good. But when I factor God's mighty hands into the equation, I can humble myself. I can take a step back. I can put others first and consider the bigger picture. You see, if I'm assured that God's hands are big enough and strong enough to get what I need when I need it in due time, then in the meantime, I can serve God's higher interest. Exaltation is in His hands. And that brings us peace. And this is why Peter tells us in verse 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Guys, here is the key to happiness. And some folks waste their whole life trying to find the key. Here it is. Turn your worries over to God. That's how you can be happy. Learn to turn your worries over to God. 
Some people try to find happiness by eliminating their troubles and their worries or by pretending that those troubles and worries are not real or don't exist. You know, according to a Psychology Today magazine, in 2008, 4,000 books were published on the subject of obtaining happiness. 4,000. That was up from 50 in the year 2000. People today are desperately trying to be happy. In a Newsweek article, Julie Baird, she commented that despite our Oprah cheeriness and our positive thinking and our visualizing greatness and our life coaches and our prosperity teaching and theology, Americans today are a gloomy bunch. We've become more unhappy in our pursuit of happiness. In fact, she concludes in her article, we're urging positivity while our circumstances are rotten. See, here's the truth in our culture. Even among some Christians that we have been conditioned to ignore. And that's this. Just wishing your troubles away doesn't make them go away. Julie's article suggests mass delusion has taken over America. Remember, Peter was writing to real people with real problems. And he doesn't write glibly. He doesn't just tell his readers, oh, just look on the sunny side. That's all you have to do. No, it's hard to look on the sunny side when your property's being confiscated and when you're being discriminated on the job and when you're being persecuted. No, Peter tells these battered believers reading his letter, you need to own your cares and your problems, but then you need to cast them on a God who cares for you. You need to take your cares and put them into the mighty hand of God under which you've bowed. Are you putting your cares into God's mighty hand? And then you need to keep putting them there because I'm telling you, those cares and worries, they have a way of crawling out and coming back. They're like a stray cat. Have you ever tried to get rid of a stray cat? Put it in the car, you drive it down the road, you let it out a couple miles from the house. Yes, some of you do that. And yet the little critter finds its way right back to your house. Before you know it, it's right back on the porch. You know why? It's because you fed it. And you milked it. And you nurtured that cat before you decided to let it go. That's why it came back. And that's why your cares come back after you've supposedly turned them over to God. You've got to stop feeding them and stop milking them and stop putting out little plates of milk for them. Live under the shadow of God's mighty hand, not in the light of all the stuff you've put in it. Take your cares and turn them into prayers. I have a friend who gave me some great advice he said, Sandy, always turn your cares over to God before you go to bed. He's going to be up all night anyway. It's true. And speaking of cats, Peter also had a problem with stray cats. He talks about it in verse 8. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring cat, like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Reminds me of the female lion tamer. She was this drop-dead, beautiful blonde who had such a special way with animals. Just a boom, 
flick of the whip. She made wild lions just lay their head down in her lap and just gently nuzzle up against her and sort of snuggle and cuddle up with her. Once, when her show was over, a heckler shouted, Oh, that's nothing. I can do that. The ringmaster, he jumped up and he said, Okay, if you can do that, just step into the ring. The man answered, Sure, just get that lion out of there first. And I can relate. Because when I get home, I get to cuddle up with my lion tamer. I've got a drop-dead gorgeous blonde with whom I love to snuggle. But there's no snuggling and no cuddling in my house until I get the lion out. And likewise, there's no peace in the church until we deal with this mangy lion. Satan is the roaring lion. And he's seeking whom he may devour. He roams into our homes and into our church trying to wreak havoc. And break us apart and stop all the snuggling. You know the devil, he hates snuggling. I've come to this conclusion. He hates snuggling. He hates marital snuggling. He hates Christian snuggling. This is why maintaining happiness requires being sober and being vigilant. This world, it's not a playground, guys. It's a battleground. And we have an adversary who wants to do us harm. Satan wants to break us up. He wants to distract us and discourage us. You know, jungle experts, they say the roaring lion is not the one you really have to worry about. He's just the decoy. Little innocent Bambi, she comes strolling down the path. All of a sudden, though, the roaring lion jumps out in front of her. And he snarls and he growls and he makes these fierce noises. But that's all he can do is roar because he's old and he's toothless. But he still remembers how to look menacing. In reality, though, he's as harmless as a kitty cat. And yet the old roaring lion, he can strike fear into the heart of little Bambi. And when she sees him standing there in the path, she spins around and she flees in the opposite direction right into the jaws of the young lions who are waiting on the kill. You see, Christians need to understand Satan is a roaring lion. He's toothless. Jesus has declawed the lion. Satan is now nothing more than an alley cat. By the power of Jesus, on Calvary's cross, Satan was rendered harmless. The only way he can defeat us now is through fear and intimidation. See, Satan still knows how to muster up a good roar. But if you succumb to his fears, if you listen to his doubts, he'll have his way. He'll distract you from the path that you're on. The devil will discourage you in your walk with God. You'll spin around in the opposite direction and you'll run right straight into the teeth of trouble. This is why verse 9 tells us, resist him. Steadfast in the faith. Don't run. Resist. Stand strong. Refuse to back down or turn around. Be steadfast in your faith. That means dig into the batter's box, man. Get you some sure footing. Brace yourself for some opposition. Know that you're in it for the long haul. I love James 4 verse 7. It teaches us resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Did you know this is a promise? If you resist the devil, the devil is forced to flee. I love Ephesians 6. Paul describes the spiritual armor that God supplies us. The belt of truth and the helmet of salvation and the sandals of peace and the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of righteousness. God's protective armor covers our whole body, our head, our chest, our feet, our guts, our legs. Every part of our anatomy is protected except the back. There's no protection for the back. Because God doesn't intend for us to run. He intends for us to resist. And this is why if you tuck tail and run and retreat from the devil, you will make yourself vulnerable. You've got to resist. You've got to stand strong in the Lord. Resist the devil. Never ever retreat. And then verse 9 adds, Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Here's some great encouragement. As a Christian, you're not alone. Believers in all ages and in every culture have had to fight the same three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Similar prayers have been offered in struggles similar to yours. And those prayers that have been prayed have been answered. And people all over the world have received God's help and God's strength, just as you will, if you'll pray and ask those same prayers. When Peter starts winding down his letter in verse 10, he says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Notice the four ways that Peter prays for his readers. This is how we should pray for each other. Lord, perfect them. Complete them, Lord. God, finish what you've started in their lives. Establish Make us unmovable, God. Put an end to our shaky faith. Strengthen us, Lord. Add muscle to our faith so we can do great works for God. And then settle us, Lord. Settle us in. Help us get comfortable in our new skin. As believers now, help us embrace all that our identity in Christ involves. And God, help us look to the future. Hey, do you see it this morning? Do you see what your future holds? I hope you do. I hope you can see your ultimate end. And it's not a foreclosure or a layoff or a downsizing or a sickness or a spate of trouble. In Christ Jesus, God has called you and I and all true believers to join Him in His eternal glory. That's your future. That's where you're headed If you're in Christ, His eternal glory. That means heaven, and that means new bodies. I'm getting tired of this old one. And that means new capacities, and new environments, and new pleasures, and new appetites. It means the breath of God, and finally the likeness of God, and the love of God, and the pleasures of God. You see, glory, the word glory, means heaviness. His eternal glory is His heaviness. You see, one day, all the blessings that God's mighty hand can hold are going to be yours, and they're going to be mine. We are headed for His eternal glory. The question is, is when? And we're always asking that, aren't we? When? 
Mommy, when are we going to get there? When? We want it now, don't we? Right now. Yet Peter says, it comes after you have suffered a while. In just a while, you'll get there. You see, compared to God's eternal glory, our remaining suffering is just a short while. You say, but wait a minute. A bankruptcy is going to scar my credit record for seven years. My baby's going to have to live with this the rest of his life. This sickness can never be cured. How can you say the time remaining is just a little while? You see, your time of hardship may not be a little while on any earthly timeline, but compared to eternity, whatever suffering is required from us, it lasts just a while. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Think of this. In Paul's 30-year ministry, he was stoned and robbed and shipwrecked and beaten multiple times and imprisoned. Oftentimes he went without sleep and without shelter and without food and without warmth and without respect. But in looking back on it, he considered all of that just, just but for a moment. A light affliction, he called it. He said it was all just a blip on the screen compared to the glory and beauty and blessing and heaviness that awaited him in heaven. i got to tell you this. You really need to, to understand this. Did you know that your first few seconds of heaven, not minutes now, just your first few seconds of heaven are going to be so grand and so glorious and so far beyond what you could dare imagine or possibly describe that those first few seconds of heaven are going to more than make up for ten lifetimes of suffering and persecution. If you're full of anxiety this morning, kick back, my friend. Take a chill pill. In a while, you'll see. It was worth it. Well, Peter closes with a few personal remarks. Which means, by the way, Peter was a pastor with pals. Peter had friends, believe it or not. And he cared about his friends, so much so that he uses up a little space in the sacred text to give them a mention. He writes in verse 12, By Silvanus, or Silas, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Silas, remember, was also Paul's friend. He was Paul's traveling companion on his last two missionary journeys. Here he's with Peter. He may have been Peter's stenographer. He penned the letter as Peter dictated it to him. This letter was, quote, by Silvanus. Verse 13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. It's possible Peter wrote this letter from the literal city of Babylon, yet there's no record or tradition that Peter ever traveled that far east. A better interpretation would be to take his reference as spiritual Babylon. Rome, a city that Peter did visit, that did sort of become his home. It became a later capital of Babylonian paganism. 
So she who is in Babylon would be the church at Rome. And then Peter writes, this church greets you and so does Mark, my son. Peter had the same mentoring relationship with Mark that Paul had with Timothy. John Mark was Peter's protege. He was Peter's son in the faith. And notice here, Peter was an elder cultivating younger people to replace him. That's good wisdom. You know, the early church fathers, Irenaeus and Eusebius, they tell us that Mark's gospel was actually Peter's reflections recorded by Mark. And then the letter closes. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Not a kiss of lust, mind you, but a kiss of love. Four times in the New Testament we're told, greet one another with a holy kiss. We're told four times, and yet I don't see it very often. And you can tell the difference in kisses. A holy kiss is pure. It's compassionate, not passionate. It's caring, not craving. And a holy kisser doesn't just target the cute girls. He goes after everybody. Of course, customs differ over time and culture. You know, in the Middle East today, you'll see men pecking each other on the cheek. One of you guys try to peck me on the cheek, and I'm going to pop you in the nose. I'll take a handshake from the dudes. But here's the point for us today. In the New Testament church, it wasn't just enough, apparently, to say you loved one another. You expressed that love in a tangible way. In America, Christians think they're going out of the way just to shake hands. And a hug? A hug? That's over the top. We reserve hugs for funerals and weddings. But you know, I think if Peter were among us, he'd expect more. He'd say, give each other a high five. Or maybe a fist pump. Or even a chest slap from time to time. At the very least, a hearty handshake. And then Peter signs off. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Here's 1 Peter in a nutshell. Don't let Satan pull the wool over your eyes. When the fiery trial comes, and it will, don't think some strange thing has happened to you. Remember, life is a test. Life is only a test. May you pass all your tests with faith and flying colors.